Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. I remember needing to be brave. All I knew is that the truth was not being said. It felt like at that age, everywhere I looked, no one would tell the truth about anything. It's a classic age of disillusionment and fury. And I think Guyville has a lot of that. And if you aren't pissed in your 20s, you're not paying attention. Back in 1993, a young songwriter named Liz Fair came out of nowhere to drop one of the 90s defining albums, Exile and Guyville. You said things I wouldn't say straight to my face, boy. It was one of those debuts that announces a bold new talent, ready to make a classic her first time out. Liz Fair came from the Chicago indie rock scene, but she had a new story to tell, the secret life of an ordinary 20-something woman grappling with love and sex and insecurity. The songs were full of scathing jokes, smart-ass put-downs, and raw emotional confessions. It was the sound of Liz Fair finding her voice. Exile and Guyville didn't get any mainstream airplay, but it changed the stakes for indie rock, musically, culturally, and emotionally. Nobody had heard anything like this before. For many listeners, it felt like a voice we've been waiting to hear our whole lives. Exile and Guyville was Fair's song-by-song answer to the Rolling Stones' 1972 classic, Exile on Main Street. That might have seemed arrogant, especially coming from a girl who had never made an album before, but Liz Fair didn't conform to any of the cultural expectations for young female musicians, and neither did her songs. In the male-dominated music scene of the time, she was refusing to play nice. I knew I was in a boy's world and I wanted to shout, here I come, I'm going to be in the boy's world. One, two, three, four, five. Break down, baby. I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone and your host for Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, the podcast where we dig into 10 albums off our brand new list. In this episode, Liz Fair's Exile and Guyville. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In the 90s, all the rules for music were changing fast. After Nirvana took punk rock to the top of the pop charts, all bets were off. Suddenly, rebellious rock and roll women voices were in the mix. 
Riot girl bands like Bikini Kill and Heavens to Betsy were raising questions about gender, sexuality, and feminism. Questions that the mainstream had ignored for too long. New musical styles are emerging every day. It was a time when fresh new voices could step up to the mic and be heard, as long as they had something to say. And Liz Fair had a lot to say. Rolling Stone's pop expert Rob Sheffield was just one of the countless 90s rock bands who got their minds blown by Exile and Guyville. He's been writing about Liz Fair ever since Exile came out in the summer of 1993. Here's Rob with the full story. Liz Fair had no band, no fans, no buzz. She'd never set foot in a recording studio. She'd never even gotten on stage. All she had was her songs. Liz Fair was just another 80s hipster kid living in the Chicago indie rock scene, right out of college. That's when she wrote the songs that turned into her classic 1993 debut, Exile in Guyville. I think attending Oberlin College had a lot to do. I was writing songs before then. Music was just a part of our household. I was always expected to play an instrument. I feel like my parents took their children to a lot of the same cultural events that they went to, if it was at all possible or appropriate. So I did have a sense of popular music at the time. Or, you know, I remember being three and listening to Jesus Christ Superstar all the way through in the living room, just being in, you know, really just like, wow, <laughs> a lot is going on. She was hanging out in the artsy Chicago neighborhood of Wicker Park, which became known by the nickname she made famous, Guyville. A lot of bars, a lot of rock clubs, a lot of bands, and a lot of guys. The scene was like, it fe- to be a part of it felt like being a renegade. You almost knew your fellow libertines because you would see them on the street from like three blocks away. You could just identify. It was like being part of a subculture. Our club was that we cared about this music passionately and we were invested in making it, seeing it selling it, whatever. It was, it was a club of passion. But Liz Fair had a secret nobody knew. She was writing songs about the whole experience. Just a girl and her guitar strumming songs into her four-track tape machine in her bedroom. You know, I had never recorded before. I'd never performed on stage before. All I had done is play songs in my bedroom. That's why she felt free to get so personal in her songs. She never thought anybody would hear them. She couldn't even imagine getting up in the spotlight in front of an audience. I'm singing entirely from the place of the privacy of a bedroom because most bands picture performing it live, which I never did. I think that's one of the tricks of Guyville is that in my mind, there was no question that I would ever get up on stage. I would never do something like that. I have no desire to do that. What a terrible idea. So most bands would picture performing these songs for people. This album was written entirely from the point of view of the person that's never going to tell this to anybody, right? She put her songs on a demo tape under the name of Girly Sound. She taped a few copies for friends, but then something strange happened. The friends who heard it wanted to tape it for their friends. The cassette began to make the rounds, passed on from hand to hand. The first time I heard the Girly Sound tape was in early 1992, over a year before Exile came out. What a sound. Liz singing about love and sex and rage in her flat Midwestern twang. The sound was lo-fi, but the mood was total emotional realness.
One of the people who heard it was a guy named Brad Wood, another Chicago rock scenester who played the drums in the local band Shrimp Boat. He went on to produce Exile in Guyville. The first time he heard the songs, Liz was asleep in the next room. John Henderson introduced me to Liz at Beck Dudley and John Moore's wedding reception at Lounge Acts, September or October of 1991. And that's when I met Liz briefly. We talked for a few minutes. And then the next night, I went down to John's apartment in Wicker Park, and he played me six songs or something that were the girly sound songs. Liz was asleep because she was either hungover or not feeling well or just tired. And that was it. That was 1991, almost 30 years ago. (laughs) He was stunned by what he heard. He'd been producing indie rock artists for a couple of years, but he'd never heard a songwriter like her before. With Liz, it was the first time where I had the opportunity to work with somebody who was completely self-contained. She wrote amazing songs, amazing lyrics, really interesting chord structure, really intricate, almost impossible to sort of replicate vocal melodies that she sang so easily that they were deceptive. I walked home just kind of saying over and over again, like, how how do I not screw this up? Because everybody, I think, in my position wants to meet their Bob Dylan or their Patti Smith. And I felt like maybe I had. Maybe I'll be Lenny Kay to her Patti Smith. There's something really special going on here. How do I not mess this up? I wasn't like thinking of all these things I wanted to add to it. How can I translate what I just listened to? When they recorded Exile in Guyville, they kept it minimal. No backup band. For the most part, the only musicians on the whole album are Liz Fair, Brad Wood, and guitarist Casey Rice. In another situation, it might have turned into just an album of folk songs, but Fair and Wood wanted a lot more. I feel like Brad gets a lot of credit for that. Like Brad Wood should get credit for making sure that we were pared down, you know, the minimum. He was very focused on making sure we didn't put anything on it that didn't need to be there. And I think he taught me a lot about minimalism. I think his jazz background or his training, he had a real sense of ego about it. You know, if it, it, it was a win for him if he found an instrument that didn't need to go on. And I think that's something I took with me forward from working with him. They recorded the album over the course of a year while Liz was living at her folks' house back in the suburbs. Like any typical suburban girl, she had to commute to the city. It was a couple of days in January of 1992 you know, five evenings in February and some recording over the weekend. Most of the time she was living with her parents. She'd moved back in with her parents uh, in Winnetka. So there was the trouble of getting her from her parents' house in the northern suburbs down to Wicker Park and then back again. Everything about the album was designed to seem casual and homemade. Even the album cover portrait was Liz striking a pose in an ordinary photo booth in a local neighborhood bar, doing a parody of a seductive pose. But even if the songs sounded simple on the surface, they were deceptively complex. Fair was a genius at emotional role-playing. Some of these songs are sad and vulnerable. In other songs, she's a sexual aggressor, seducing and conquering whoever she wants. Sometimes she gets her heart broken. Other times, she's the heartbreaker. I think that's what 
it's like to be a person. I feel like on a given day, I'm one side of myself, and on another given day, I'm another side of myself. Like, there was a very conscious structuring when I made this album. It was, it seems confessional, but it was really artistically developed. That I knew how to do. That I had experience with. Fussing with an art piece, I know how to do that. I wanted to make sure my character had all the facets so shown. No, really, like truly, I sat there thinking like, have I shown all the sides of myself? There was a real sense that women needed to be able to play complex roles in my mind when I was making Guyville. And I wanted to show contradiction. I wanted to show the ways in which we don't fit we don't fit with our own personalities, or that you can be two different people and show different sides of your life, different sides of yourself. I wanted to absolutely push aside and carve out space for the complex woman, consciously, which is weird, but I took that very seriously back then. Exile was one of those albums that captures a moment in history. 1993 was the year that everything seemed to change for women with guitars. Exile went hand-in-hand hand with the year's other huge albums by innovative, independent female rock voices, whether that meant P.J. Harvey, The Breeders, Bikini Kill, or many others. Exile was a massive part of that. But don't you think the reason it hit like that is because that was a metaphor for how we were all feeling generally? I always believe when, when something really takes off, there's a resonance throughout culture. Someone's articulating something that a lot of people are feeling. And I think what I struck upon was a sense of that, those economic forces from the 80s having ground under their wheels a lot of people's middle class lives. And there was a sense of, you know, we need to shout about this or strike out on our own, whether it's, whether it's a mainstream music scene that you're rebelling against, whether it's a lifestyle, an American dream that is bankrupt or whatever it is, there's a sense that the personal howl, you know, the personal howl is a long tr American tradition. And maybe not a lot of women have been credited with that at different times. Certainly Patti Smith's horses feels like that to me. But her personal howl was also an eccentric musical statement. There's never been an album that sounded like Exile. A song like Fuck and Run is so striking, yet there's no bass on it. No bass guitar. It's two, two tracks of drums, Liz's one guitar, two voices of hers, me singing harmony, and then a track of Slave Bell. The sound of Exile was dry, minimal, percussive leaving plenty of room for Liz Fair's voice and guitar. Many producers have tried to copy the sound of Exile, but nobody's figured out how to do it right. Well, uh, that's got to be because of her guitar tone. She was playing her little Fender Duo Sonic through her PV Backstage amp, which is like a thrift store amp, not a heralded piece of audio equipment, but has a really amazing reverb section. But it's a, li a little amp that you can carry around with you easily. And we use a lot of chorus pedal, which is that sort of washy sound, and some compressor pedal, and lots of reverb. Um, so it was already kind of a swirling sound. Liz is a much better guitar player than, than most people then realized. You said things I wouldn't say straight 
Mesmerizing is another one of the album's classic songs. The bluesy guitar feels like a late-night confession in a smoky bar. Yeah, you can kind of feel the half-drunk whiskey in the cigarette. Like, you know, you can feel it there. Just I think uh, when I hear Guyville, I hear, I hear the sadness, actually, which is interesting. I hear the sadness. Don't you know nobody two rivers? Part of the emotional impact was just the sound of her voice. Fair sang in a flat, conversational tone, self-consciously presenting the voice of an ordinary girl. That was why I did girly sound before I did Guyville. I did these tapes where I would speed up my voice and say these dirty things because I'd been in a class that had stated as fact that the young female voice had the least authority of any voice, including male children of anyone in society, that the young female voice was the least authoritative, had the least credibility. So, of course, you just want to say everything. You're like, really? So it doesn't matter what I say, or you're not going to listen to me, or my experience is invalid or important? You go a little bananas, you know, when you're, you're undervalued in that way. At least I did. It was incredibly rare to hear a voice like this anywhere in pop culture in 1993. For one thing, her voice was Midwestern enough to peel paint. (laughs) Yeah, it's like like snorting some kind of like clarifying tonic, like, oh, God. You know, like, I can't listen to girly sound stuff. You know, I'll listen to me like, oh, she's going to do it. And she, I forget what it is, like, and it's like all nasal. It's just like 10 minutes of nasal. And it's clearly imitating those hair bands. It's clearly imitating some kind of, I feel like Butch Vig would do it better. Like there's a pickle in the mouth, you know, like whatever it is, I'm imitating some kind of trope of masculine rockdom that I've heard on MTV or something. But yeah, no, the, I mean, my poor mother, she just recently gave me singing lessons. <laughs> Seriously? I'm gonna use them too, actually. <laughs> like, it's true. Like there's, she'll occasionally, I think, mom, there was one song that she didn't like the way the T sounded like a D. Somehow I'd like mumbled it on a chorus and it really bothered her, like the enunciation part. I didn't get it till I read my audiobook, but I have a, such a nasal mumbly twang and there's nothing to do about it now. It's what everybody likes, but I hate hearing it. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. 
That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fair got taken for granted as a guitar hero. Even when people got fascinated by her voice and her storytelling, they'd often overlook her greatness on guitar. I think she's getting credit now. It took a while. I have always advocated for her genius on guitar. There is no one else that I've ever recorded in 30 plus years of doing this that approaches the guitar like she does. And I'm not much of a fan for folky guitar playing. So I was really happy that Liz wasn't a traditional guitar player. She's more an electric guitar player than she is an acoustic guitar player. And her chord shapes have more to do with like Glenn Branca or Joni Mitchell than with um, anyone else, really. I mean, she's just a really singular guitar player. Liz Fair planned the album as a response to the Rolling Stones classic Exile on Main Street. Both albums have 18 songs. Each song was a reply to the role Mick Jagger was playing on the Stones album. I think a lot of Mick and the Rolling Stones are there in Guyville. They are... They're everywhere in terms of the bravado that I'm showing, the dynamic throughout the record. I used their sort of expansive contractive map, but sometimes I played against it. I didn't want to be too, I didn't want to imitate. I wanted to be inspired by, so I took their template and made it my own. I would not have sounded Guy Ville-y if I had not been looking to the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones helped me sound good. <laughs> they helped me sound better. They helped me like hold myself to better standards. They really did. Something that Liz Fair and Mick Jagger have in common, they're masters of disguise, playing around with sexual persona. It's so evident in his performance that the minute anyone brings it up, immediately you think, oh my God, yes, he's like the greatest actor. He's 100% physically in every part of his body embodying what he's singing. I think he uses his body like an actor, like a dancer. Like That's as much of the performance as his voice and the words. It's masterful. And sexy. It's sexy. One of the album's most famous moments is Divorce Song. It feels so dramatic, but it's just a couple in a car having a bad day together. And when I asked... It's interesting because I've gone through exactly one divorce in my life, and I've gone through one child, a boy, and I kind of pre-wrote these things for myself. It's such a simple song. It's just about bickering in a car, you know, and when what we're going to do when we get to the hotel. But we can't get rid of that feeling where you really do still love the person, but you're definitely not going to speak first. You know what I mean? Like that crunch that we find ourselves. We put ourselves in that crunch so many times. Like, I'm not going to let you know that I still love you and I want to be with you. I'm going to say the exact opposite thing. I mean, it just, I love those parts of life where you're stuck 
I want to unstick all the parts of my life emotionally where I'm stuck. And I, I think songwriting, it tricks you into saying what you mean. It tricks you into knowing what you feel. You know, it's very therapeutic. The music was often quiet, never noisy, but it had the aggressive spirit of punk rock. It may not qualify as punk, but in my mind, that's what I thought I was doing. I thought I was standing up uh, against an invisible tide of, you know, a lifetime's worth of expectations and sort of shouting into the wind on the edge of the cliff. You know, in a, in a way, that's what I thought I was doing on stage. Even though there were people there, that was always a bit of a surprise to me. I'm like, you know, I'm here to shout into the wind. <laughs> going to try to ignore you while I shout into the wind. But as soon as Exile came out in the summer of 1993, it became a scandal. The rock scene of that time was still very much a guyville, and there was a sense that Liz Fair was here to invade the boys' club. I knew I was in a boys' world, and I wanted to shout, here I come, I'm going to be in the boys' world. There's a famous 1993 photo of Fair performing live in a Chicago rock club in her early days. She's standing on stage. The entire audience is a sea of frowning male faces. You are literally looking at me singing Devorah song to those faces. That's the world in which I stood up in. That wasn't just one night. That was every single day and every single night. That's how isolated and unusual it was to be the female creator. And there were other women. I was not the only woman on stage by any means. But I had not been assigned a chaperone. I had not been assigned... A manager. I had not been assigned a Svengali. Like, I was unbound by male ownership, which was strange. That was unusual. There's Guyville. <laughs> like, you, if you didn't get it, there it is. <laughs> that male-dominated audience was the wind she was shouting into. That was the wind. The, those are the faces I saw every day. And every time I wanted to say something you know, in some kind of recording studio since those are the faces I'm seeing. Every time I want to do something different with my career, those are the faces I'm seeing. Every time I want to do anything or say anything, those are the faces I see, you know? It didn't stop with Guyville. It wasn't over once that record was finished. It was really just beginning. I've lived a whole career in those faces. Exile was a divisive, controversial album. There was a vicious backlash against Fair, especially in Chicago. As the album became more and more of a cultural phenomenon, the backlash got nastier and more misogynistic. The level of misogyny and entitlement that existed in the American rock and roll, indie rock world, was really, really awful. I was only becoming aware of it at the time I, was, I, I met Liz was working with her. She, it's like, it's like Don Quixote. She puts on, you know, she puts on the armor, hops on the horse and goes after the windmills and knowing kind of full well that she's going to encounter the same tiresome misogyny. But that's part of the legacy of Guyville. Liz Fair opened new doors for women to speak their mind with guitars. If you're listening to indie rock in 2022, you're listening to a whole new world of Liz Fair's. There's definitely a shared language. I, f I feel like what I'm seeing when I'm out there is people who speak the same native tongue. There was the Guyville, and there was a way of speaking in Guyville. And then all these women came and have filled up 
their rightful places where they should have been all along. And there's a shorthand that we can share with each other. There's a shorthand for female musicians that there's just an understanding we share the same problems, the same aspirations, the same challenges. It's like moving to a foreign country, not you know learning the native language, but still longing to speak your tongue. And then all these other people coming, just like you, who also speak that language, your, your original language, and just conversing. You're still in that land. You're fully integrated. You don't want to go home. But like all these people also speak your language, and it's this great community. That's exactly how it feels to me now. Fair night and day from what it was like when I was the only female for miles. Exile has gone on to become one of the most influential rock albums of modern times. People who weren't even born then still hear Exile as the story of their lives. That's the power of really amazing songwriting. That's just Liz's, she's just really gifted. She's a great writer. That's really what it comes down to. And so she's going to inspire people to fall in love with those words long after she's gone. She is on a level with Patti Smith and Dylan in my book. And I've been saying that for almost 30 years. <laughs> I And I don't shy away from it. I To me, that's who her peers are. Exile still represents that aspirational standard for today's most brilliant young songwriters. From Phoebe Bridgers to Waxahachie, from Soccer Mommy to Mannequin Pussy. Marissa DeBeese of Mannequin Pussy is just one of the countless great songwriters who takes inspiration from Liz Fair. I remember when I first discovered that record, I think it just spoke so much to exactly where I was. It was like one of those moments where you you felt like someone had found your inner narrator and had put those emotions into songs, which is always a really exciting experience when, when you connect to something like that. How would you say she influenced you as a writer? I think kind of the fearlessness to not second guess the things that you want to say. Don't worry about stupid shit like your parents hearing it or your friends hearing it. Like, don't worry about the things that you say on record potentially influencing someone's idea that they have of you. Just say whatever it is that you feel that you need to say. For you personally, why this record? Why does this record have, you know, of, of all the records made with similar themes, why, why does this record have such a permanent place that people always hear it and go, yes, that's my life? Why do you think it had that effect on you? I think this is like one of the first times where I heard an artist who, you know, also happened to to be a woman who really at no point ever seems like fragile and out of control on this record. She seems so self-aware of the emotions that she has. She feels so like confident in them and everything she says, you feel like she really believes. There's just certain things she says on this record that I, I just had never heard a woman express before outside of the confines of my own head. This like confidence that she has on, on that record too, to, to be singing a lot about these things. And I imagine coming from like the 80s of like the kind of gratuitous sex of like the Motley Crue era. And then here comes someone like Liz Fair who experiences a lot of those same emotions, but is putting them in, in such a different way that doesn't make you feel like an object, but actually in control of these really like universal human emotions. And I, I think maybe that's what it is, is it was like one of the first times I heard an album where the artist is like really openly discussing like sex and longing that they're in control. They're not just the object. 
I really feel for the women of the 90s. They went through so much fucking bullshit so that the rest of us could run. <laughs> and like we're still, I mean, I wouldn't say we're, we're running, but we are maybe power walking now. When I look at millennials and I look at Gen Z and I see the young female artists like me, they're so complete. I envy their confidence. I envy their sense of self. They have a real sense of autonomy that I didn't have. Even after 25 years, Exile and Guyville has never sounded dated. For some reason, these songs resonate more than ever. Guyville's such a great example of how I lived my life that year. It is such a truthful excavation of how I lived my life in Wicker Park. And if I could leave behind artifacts that redolent of the time, I'd be so happy. But Liz Fair definitely didn't stay in the same place after Exile. Just a year later, she released her excellent second album, Whip Smart. In 2019, she published her memoir, Horror Stories. And she just released her brilliant new album in 2021, called Soberish. She recorded it with producer Brad Wood, the same collaborator from Exile. They cut Soberish in his home studio in the backyard. It's a tribute to continued inspiration. Liz Fair keeps telling her stories from every stage of life with the same level of emotional honesty. That's what I want. That's what I want to leave behind. That's it. Like, if I'm doing that and you feel like that's what I'm doing, then I'm doing what my life's purpose is. All the other stuff is like, in a you know, a, a thing to let the real job happen, which is that I was here, I lived... I described it, it's there, you can live it and live through it with me. And that's just one more of the things that we've all put out there that makes, I mean, that's, that's why I am an artist, because I experienced other art. I'm an artist because they awakened me, because they showed me how to live my life, how to be awake and dreaming at the same time. And I think that's what the creator gets. Someone who's creative gets to experience that and that is a drug in and of itself. Awakened dreaming is a pretty cool drug. Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville ranks number 56 on Rolling Stone's new 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. I'm Brittany Spanos. This has been Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, an Amazon original podcast. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Hank Schemer, Gus Winner, and myself. This episode was produced by Rob Sheffield. Mixing by Marquise Neal. Our senior producer is Michelle Lands. Additional production help by Mary Dew. Bridget Shelsey is our production manager. Peter Miller is our music supervisor. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Nathan Brackett, Morgan Jones, Steph Walkney, and Lauren D. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums every Tuesday and hear it first on Amazon Music. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven, a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what 
she is willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Reyes Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.